gospel. Uh, this is, if you're newer to the Alliance, this is not a title that's original to me. If you're not new with the Alliance, you're like, oh, we're hearing this again. Yes, you are, because this is an Alliance church, and this is what we talk about. So the last time we did this series was in 2017 uh, as a church family, and so it's good for us to do this again. Um, just to give you a little history of how the Alliance happened, um, in the 1880s, a Presbyterian uh, minister named Albert Benjamin Simpson, or A.B. Simpson, uh, Great Uncle Al, as I like to call him, um, <laughs> Resigned from pastoring, uh, a very affluent uh, Presbyterian church in New York uh, City because the church did not, at that point, want to receive into the church uh, the, uh, the immigrant, uh, Italian immigrants mainly, that were coming into the church uh, through Dr. Simpson's ministry. And so he basically went out and started his own uh, thing, and that became a movement, and then that became a denomination uh, because that's kind of the way things work. They start out real... Uh, just kind of like a movement and real uh, loose and fast. And then uh, we realized, wait a minute, we need a little bit of structure. We need, And so that became uh, what we call today the Christian and Missionary Alliance. It's a very short version of the history. Uh, but as a part of his ministry work, Dr. Simpson wanted to articulate as best he could his vision for his beliefs, particularly about Jesus Christ. Because, uh, you know, Jesus Christ is kind of our thing. It's the center of the Christian faith. And so he said, how can I articulate my vision for what this movement is going to be about when it comes to Jesus. Uh, and so we call that the fourfold gospel. And all the fourfold gospel is, if you are not from an alliance background, is just our Christology. That's all it is. It is our teachings about Jesus, uh, and it's summed up in a way that's pretty easy to remember. So in our case, as an alliance church, it's what we call the fourfold gospel. Um, it's just his way of communicating this. Uh, in, a, in a memorable way. So we see that Jesus Christ is our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. And I think we have the graphic for uh, the sermon. It has those symbols that you saw a little bit ago um, as well. Is that up there or no? Yeah, your name. There it is. So uh, the cross is Jesus, our Savior. The laver, which is like a, uh, a, a bowl to clean in, uh, is Jesus, our Sanctifier. Uh, healer is oil being poured out, and coming king is the crown. And if you're wondering where did this beautiful, amazing artwork come from, it came from our Alliance brothers and sisters in Canada. Uh, so they have a really great graphic artist up there. Um, I was nerding out this week on his website, and he has a bunch of prints you can buy, and it's amazing work. Um, but this is probably my favorite so far um, fourfold gospel um, images. So uh, this will be up around the church. If any of you are interested in having these printed, um, I have the ability to print them in-house. So let me know if you want some of these for your house uh, or something like that. But we can do that. A couple other things I want to let you know about is this book. Uh, I believe between this and the two that are on the resource table, that's the three that I have. But this is pretty new. Um, and it's kind of self-published by Steve Grusendorf, who's an ordained minister in the CMA. But this is A.B. Simpson's book, The Fourfold Gospel, uh, modernized. So it's a the language is a little bit modernized. The graphics are a little bit uh, cooler. But same symbols, cross, laver, pitcher, crown. Uh, so you can grab, you don't have to fight for it. There's only two of them out there. But you can grab uh, one of those on your way out. And then last thing is there is a printed pamphlet of The Fourfold Gospel. Uh, if you want a simple version of it, it's with this artwork uh, from the Canadian Alliance. And uh, that's out on the Resource Center as well. So all that being said, there's a bunch of resources for you to dig into the fourfold gospel. Today, we're going to focus on Jesus, our Savior. Now, if you're not from the Alliance background, 
This one is probably going to be the most familiar to you. Jesus is our Savior. Every Christian ever always says that. Uh, and so that's what we're going to kind of focus on today. Uh, but before we can talk about Jesus, our Savior, we kind of need to back up and answer a couple questions, right? Uh, why do we even need a Savior? What are we even being saved from? What is, why would we need a Savior? So, so let's start with why we need saving. And to do that, we actually want to go to God's character. We want to start with God's nature. So the Bible tells us that God is good and that everything that he has made from the start was good. So that at the beginning, everything that God made was good. He, he says it himself, right? In Genesis 1.27, the scripture says this. So God created man in his own image. Now, keep that thought in your mind that mankind was created in the image of God. Uh, he created them male and female. And then in verse 31 in Genesis 3, later on, it says, God saw all that he had made, right, including mankind, you and I, and he said that it was very good indeed. So now follow this sort of train of logic, right? God made us in his image, and he says that humanity is good, not only good, but very good, which means what about God? That he himself is very good, right? He made us to be in his image, and we are good. That means all the more he is good. He's infinitely good in every possible way that there could be to be good, right? God is good in all his ways. John 1, 5, 1 John 1, 5 says it this way. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Side note, that's a little, just another little heritage of Christianity. We didn't come up with this ourselves. We heard it, and now we proclaim it to you, right? And this is what it is, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So there is no darkness, no wrongness in God at all. So God is good. He made us in his image to, to be good and to do good. That's what God made us for. And not only this, but he made everything in creation to be good as well. God created everything that there is, as the creed says, the seen and the unseen, and he created it to be good. But that's not the world that you and I seem to be living in, right? Like I turn on the news, I go outside, everything's not as good as God intended it to be. And so in an everything is good world, what are we not reading about? We're not reading about wars in other nations. We're not reading about really gross abuses of power. We're not reading about earthquakes just taking life out of nowhere. And so then what has happened between what we read about in Genesis 1 and your and my experience in everyday life? What's, what's happened there? Well, in Genesis 3, we read the account of the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, a.k.a. our enemy that we were uh, hearing about in the Lord's Prayer for the last few weeks, doing the, uh, deceiving Eve into doing the one thing that God told her not to do, right? That the serpent gets Eve to believe a lie. And this is the same lie that you and I believe every day. We, we believe a different version of it and different wording, but this is the same lie that we know better than God. Right? That's the lie that we believe. And so she does that thing that we've all done where we basically say, I, I know what God said, but I don't think he really meant that. Right? And that's the deception of the serpent. Did God really say? And so Eve takes this rebellion gets her husband Adam in on it. And so Adam and Eve, although they've been given the perfect scenario in which to live, they choose to listen to the lies of the serpent and they choose to rebel against God. That's the story from Genesis. And, and that's where we find ourselves in this world of rebellion. 
And this rebellion against God is what we call sin, and it's the reason that we need a Savior. We need Jesus to save us because we are born into the line of our first father, Adam, and by nature we are sinful rebels against God. That, that's the reality. And it would be unloving for us to talk any other way about it, because that's the truth, right? One of the lies that some versions of Christianity have told historically is that we are basically just victims of this fall that we talk about. That we're just the poor victims of Adam and Eve's sin, but, right, like, let's get it straight, we like our sin. We're not just victims of it. We are in willful, sometimes glad rebellion against God. We like it. And God can't let it slide because he is just and he is holy. And if he let it slide, he would cease to be good in every way and therefore cease to be God, uh, the God of the Bible. And so there's a price for this rebellion against him. And according to his word from Genesis 3, the price for sin and rebellion is death. That on the day you rebel, you will begin to die is what God proclaims over uh, us. A way to think about this is if you rub against the grain of the universe, the way that God created things to be, you will get splinters. And ultimately, that leads to death. Uh, so let me just give you kind of a story about it. Uh, I may have, I probably have told this story before. It's not definitely not going to be the last time I have this story to tell. Uh, but I was having one of those moments with a, with a two-year-old back when Journey was two, and I'm about to step into this again. <laughs> Uh, and like not even that long with, with Legacy, but um, we were exploring the depths of her depravity as a two-year-old together, right? In one of those moments. If you've been a parent, been around children, been around any of our kids in this church, uh, you've gotten glimpses of this, right? So she was doing something that I kept telling her not to do over and over and over and over and over and over and after that over and over again, because that's what kids do, right? Uh, and I'm standing there thinking to myself about her like, you're so cute, but you're so wicked. <laughs> you're so cute, but your rebellion is for real, right? And so she does that, that thing that I told her not to do that final last time. And even though I'm a benevolent, loving father, full of grace and truth, who has an immense storehouse of patience, I finally said, all right, time out. Like that, that was the one. I gave you as many chances as I could. You got to learn. All right, parents, we got to teach our kids to obey. And so now she is in full freak-out mode, right? She's two-year-old freaking out. There's crying, there's snot, there's tears, there's kicking on the floor, trying to kick me, trying to hurt me, which doesn't make any sense, but that's what we do when we're sinful, right? So I finally get her into her little chair and, and get her kind of timeout started, and that's what we did then. And so I kneel down by her side. I start asking her some questions that I do my best to try to ask in these disciplined moments, uh, and especially in a two-year-old, really kind of laying the, the foundation, right? And so I asked her, why are you in timeout? And she answers, like, through her little snot, and I know because I didn't listen, right? And, and I'm like, okay, well, what happens when you listen? I get timeout. And I said, do you like timeout? No! Right? And so then I asked her this question, and why don't you just listen to Daddy? Why don't you just listen then? If you don't like timeout, and this is what you get. And she said... The most honest answer, she said, because I don't want to. Right? Now, she said it like, because I don't want to, like right in my face. So what's great about two-year-olds is that they haven't quite learned how to, like, hide their real motives yet, like we do. 
right? And so you get a pretty honest answer from them. And the, the reality, though, is this is the root problem with sin in us. In that moment with my two-year-old, I am biting my tongue not to laugh, right? I'm biting the inside of my cheeks because this is very cute rebellion, but it's rebellion, right? She is in full-on rebellion mode against me as her father in that moment. She's looking me straight in the face with little ice water in her veins saying, I don't care what you say. I want to do what I want to do. Right? And so that's the problem we all have when it comes to our relationship with God apart from Jesus. We are the two-year-old looking our father in the face and saying, I don't care what you say. I want to do what I want to do. And then we say, I can't believe you let bad stuff happen to me. Interesting. That's the root of the sin problem in the world. And, right, if we're honest, if we're straight with ourselves, that's the root of the sin problems in our life. We just like it. And so the problem between you and God is not something that you are just an unfortunate victim of. Now, let me just say you are a victim of sin. That is true. And you are the victim of other people's sins against you sometimes. But the primary thing that is breaking your relationship with God, it comes down to you looking God in his face and saying, I don't care what you say. I want to do what I want to do. So when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden rebel against God, what happens is that the peaceful order, the shalom, if you've heard that word before, the peaceful economy of the way things were in the world that God wove into creation was shattered and broken forever. And so this caused our relationships to break. And there's two primary relational breaks that we feel every day as a result of the rebellion in us against God that Jesus is saved, has saved us from and is saving us from and will save us from. The first is that our relationship with God is broken by our sin. And all of us have felt that. In creation, God intended us to live with him forever. But then when Adam and Eve rebel and sin enters, what comes with that is separation from God at the soul level, which leads to physical death. We are whole beings. We are not souls with a bodysuit. We are whole beings. And so what happens to one affects the other. And so death is one of the consequences of God laid out in Genesis 3. And I think this is why humanity has this sort of universal sense about death that not only is it sad, but we all have a sense that death is wrong. We have a moral reaction to hearing about especially unjustified or tragic death, that it should not happen. Why? Because written on our hearts is the image of God, and we have this innate sense that death is bad and life is good. Death is wrong and life is right. This is why things like massive earthquakes, again, don't just feel sad to us. They feel wrong. We question God. Why, God, did this happen? There's a right and wrong sense to it. That's the fingerprint of our creator on our souls. Sin has broken our relationship with God. It's perverted. What was once a straight path between us and God is now crooked and broken. But that's not the only one. The second relational break we want to focus on, and there's a third, the relationship between us and the creation is also broken. But let's focus on this second one, 
And we see this every day, is that our relationships to one another are broken as well. Any of you who have perfect relationships in all of your life, raise your hand. Okay, good. Nobody wants to lie in church. Good, I like that. In Genesis 3.16, God says this to Eve as a pronouncement of the consequences of her and Adam's rebellion against him. Listen to what God says to, to Eve about her relationship with Adam. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So if that's a consequence of sin, that means that's not the way human relationships are supposed to work. And so God set up human relationships to work in this beautiful sort of harmonious dance, if you will, that's displayed in what Adam and Eve's relationships should have looked like. God designed our relationships to, to work the way that his Trinitarian relationship works, in perfect unity with one another. Adam should be loving his wife with a humble gentleness that, that she can gladly come alongside, right? And they come alongside one another and they have this beautiful relationship. But instead, because sin has entered, because rebellion has now broken relationship with God and now with one another, we get the result that God has proclaimed here. Adam will use his God-given role to, to sort of lead his family in order to dominate over his family. Like, men, this is our proclivity. When we get mad, when we get scared, we try to dominate instead of humble leadership. And then Eve, instead of following alongside of her husband, she will be contrary to him, the scripture says. And so our sin breaks our relationships to one another. And, and you see this play out across the gender lines and across different kinds of relationships where we dominate one another and we're contrary and we have this strife. Why? Because sin has broken relationships. Now, remember from the beginning of our time this morning, we said that God has no darkness in him at all. He has no sin, no, nothing bad in him at all. He is good. And so this means that God has to respond to sin in a way that displays his goodness and that is true to his character. And so God's goodness towards sin is a reality that all of us like until it turns to us, and that's justice. We love justice until we're the one that was speeding. And then we want mercy, right? Rules for everybody, but mercy for me. That's what we want. And so we, we love it, and but when it's turned towards us, we want that mercy. And so God must respond to sin. And the way that God responds to sin is a biblical word that we don't like to talk about very often in our day and age, but we have to talk about it. It's not loving to you from me if I don't talk about it from here. And, and the truth is that God hates sin and he responds to it in what the Bible calls wrath. Right? The Bible calls God's response to sin wrath. Now, I think that we can sort of put wrath into two categories in our mind, uh, two forms of God's righteous anger towards sin, and I just want to look at them. Now, when I say the word wrath, most of us think of what I want to categorize as active wrath, God's active wrath, right? This is fire and brimstone from heaven. God's, you know, maybe you imagine God's like throwing lightning bolts at you or whatever. That's what we think of about God's wrath. When I say the word wrath, it conjures up this sort of thing. This form is, again, what we call active wrath, and it's all over the Bible, right? Don't think, oh, well, that's not a thing anymore. It's, it's all over the Bible. We, we can't tame God. There is a wildness to God that you cannot just tame. He is who he is. And so we can't forget the way that he treats sin. Here's a couple of examples 
for you if you want to write these down, if you're a note taker. Exodus 15, verses 9 through 12, God talks about destroying enemies. Genesis 19, verses 27 to 28, it says that the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. God's wrath. And, and if you think to yourself, oh, that's just mean Old Testament God, not the New Testament God. Well, we just came through the book of Acts, and if you know in the book of Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead for lying in the church gathering, basically. And in one of the most frightening verses in the Bible, um, for, for whatever reason, this just strikes me as so frightening. Peter, when he asks her the same question as her husband lied about it, she lies about it, he says to her, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And she drops dead. That's God's judgment against Sin, that's his wrath, his active wrath happening in the moment. And so the point of all this is to show us how much God hates sin. He hates it. He hates the sin in this world because it's destroying the thing that he loves, which is you and I and his creation. It, it brings destruction and death. Now, because God is also very, very patient with you and me, right? So when you think about God's wrath and what we deserve, don't let your soul go down the road of going, how can he do that? Go down the road of going, how come he hasn't done that to me? I don't deserve to be alive. And here I am. God is merciful. He's very patient with you and me, and he's decided to not display this kind of active wrath in most of our lives, even though he would be right and just to do that. Instead, there's a second form of God's wrath that I actually think uh, most of us experience pre-conversion before we come to Jesus in our lives. Now, if you know and love Jesus, there's no more wrath for you. Condemnation is over. There is now no condemnation for you. So what you experience in this world can't be the wrath of God. It has to be maybe his discipline or just the fact that you live in a broken world. But if you don't know Jesus you might experience a bit of what we might call passive wrath from God. And this is the kind of wrath that God displays to us when he lets us chase after the things that we think will save us, but will not. And he lets us get what we wanted. Right? You should be, if you don't know Jesus, you should be very worried if you never feel like anybody is stopping you from doing wrong stuff. If you just can get away with sin after sin after sin, it's not because God is blind or asleep or that you're smarter than him and sneaking it by him. It might be because he's letting you chase after that so that you'll find the consequences of that sin and turn back to him. Right In a room even with this many people in it, there's probably some of us walking in here with secret sin. And it's... It's not a secret because God doesn't care or he doesn't see, right? He knows, and the reality is he might just be letting you get away with it right now so that you get what you thought was best, and that should worry you. Romans 1 is, the, is a chapter that deals with this issue. Let me just encourage you to go read Romans 1, get the full weight of this idea of God's sort of passive wrath towards sin. Romans 1 talks about how if we want, God will give us over to what we want and it will end up destroying us. That he will hand us over to do what ought not to be done. Right? That's scary. This is the prodigal son story, if you know that story. The prodigal son comes to the father and says, I don't 
I want to just take all of your stuff, but I don't want you. That's the essence of sin. Let me go. And the father says, okay. That's passive wrath. That's the father saying, you can chase after it if you want. It's going to end up terrible. But you know what the father does at the end of that story, if you know the story. He's waiting for the son to come home because he loves him. Now, our culture wants to tell us a lie. And that lie is this. If it feels good, it must be right. Oh, there's lots of things that feel good that are not right. And so people all around us are chasing after things that cannot satisfy. And they are, as Romans 1 says, if you go and read it, they are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And God is letting them do it because he has given them over to it. God is displaying his wrath loud and clear over sin to us. If you ever like, man, why doesn't God pour his wrath out? Oh, he is. But it's just happening in a passive way. And that's actually scarier to me. God hates our sin. And in order to allow you to understand that, he will allow you to give yourself over to it so that you'll find out it doesn't work. It can't satisfy. And not only that, God is showing you that nothing that you chase after can save you from the result of sin, which is ultimately your death. Death is closer to us than it was when we walked in here today. That's just the reality of life. And God is trying to save us from death in Jesus, our Savior. So, should we end there? Should should that be the end of the sermon? Amen. Wrath, goodbye. No. We're going to talk about Jesus, our Savior, right? So we got to get to the salvation. That's ultimately the place we have to get to, though, that we run to the end of ourselves, and then we turn to Jesus for salvation, and God knows that. And so, and this might sound crazy to you, it might be his mercy that he is displaying this kind of passive wrath towards you. God wants us to understand this. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Your righteous acts are like filthy rags. And if you know what that means, it's way worse than you think. We need something or someone outside of us. Jesus said, you need a righteousness greater than the greatest religious leaders of his day. We need something or someone outside of us to come and save us from the sin problem that we have. And what the Bible said uh, there was that what we deserve, what we are owed is death. That's the end of us. And so sin gets you death, but God, by his mercy, has extended to you the answer to that, the salvation that you need, so that death does not have the final answer, but resurrection through Jesus has the final answer. The Savior you need is not a system of belief. It's not a set of morals that you live by. None of that can save you. The Savior you need is a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and here's the beauty. He is present with us this morning. He's even somehow present with those of you who are joining us online, maybe even later because he transcends time like that, and he is ready and way more than just capable of saving you here this morning. No one else in the history of the world could save us. It had to be Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who had the power and who is qualified to do the saving. Like our our world likes to say, well, maybe there's a bunch of ways you can get to God. No, there's one way you can get to God, and it's through Jesus 
Christ. Now, here's what we like to do, though. We like to make functional saviors out of a lot of stuff. We like to make functional saviors out of a lot of things. Here's how you can tell what your functional savior is. The next time you're frustrated with how your life is going, or you're like, man, this isn't right, this isn't fair, what comes into your mind as the thing that's going to solve that problem, that's going to save you, that's going to give you the good life, whatever that is, that's going to make your life better? What is that thing that comes into your mind? That is your functional savior. For many of us, for some of us, for some of us and many of us, money becomes our functional savior, right? Money can can fix a lot of problems, but it cannot fix the sin problem. In fact, it'll probably make it worse. For my generation, millennials, and I'm an older one, I know, uh, it's the, it's this idea of finding my true self, finding my true purpose. We tell ourselves, oh, when I finally figure out who I'm really meant to be, then life will be great and everything will be okay. But the Bible has a different picture about who your true self is. The Bible tells us that our true selves will not be found until they are found in Jesus, that you need salvation first in order to find what God even intended you to be. We're not going to find anything deep down in ourselves except what we already know about ourselves. You can't save you. And so your true self cannot fix the sin problem that you have because your true self before Jesus is why you have the sin problem. Acts 4.12 says it this way, there is salvation in no one else. Right? In no one else. It's clear. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there is a name that can save, and it's not your name. There is a person who can save, and it's not you. It's Jesus. So the message is simple. Come to Jesus. Do you think you have it all together? You don't. Come to Jesus. Do you think that you're too far gone and he could never love you? You're not. Come to Jesus. If you think money, relationships, comfort, the next job, kids, not kids, whatever else will save you, they won't. Come to Jesus. He's our Savior. And what's beautiful is that in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he has done everything that is necessary uh, for you and I to be saved and then some. He doesn't just kind of barely save us, right? Nobody's limping into heaven with Jesus' salvation. You're getting in all the way by faith. He saves us and he brings us into the family of God. Here's what Jesus does in saving his people. First, he satisfies all of that wrath that God has towards sin. He takes it all on himself. He absorbs it into himself. 1 John 4 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is important. I know you don't use it in your normal vernacular, right? But that means the turning away of wrath by an offering. It's atonement. In relation to salvation, propitiation means this, placating or satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Like if, if you want to think of sin as your debt that is insurmountable, that you keep racking up every second, in Jesus there is no more debt. There's a great parable in Matthew 18 that Jesus tells of this, and there's this mountain of debt that's forgiven. And this is what Jesus does. The mountain of debt that's caused by your sin that you could never, ever, ever, ever have paid by your own merit. 
Jesus has paid the entire thing. In his death on the cross, Jesus, Jesus absorbs all of God's righteous anger towards those who have trusted in Jesus. So trust in Jesus and all of your sin debt is paid. Jesus absorbs it all. Secondly, he restores our relationship to God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, that propitiation has taken effect. We have been made right with God. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not born neutral, spiritually speaking. You are born at enmity with God. You are born apart from God. You are a traitor uh, against God. The scriptures say that you are uh, hostile in your mind towards God until you come to know Jesus, right? Remember, sin is you looking God in the face and saying, I want to do what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, I know what your word says. I read about it in the Bible, but I think my way is better. That's rebellion. And so you're in a position of hostility towards God. But God, because he loves you, even in the midst of your hostility, sends his son Jesus to save you from the wrath you deserve and take you from a position of hostility to a position of peace with him. And, and here's how far it goes. Not only does he save us and give us peace, but he makes us his children. 1 John 1, 12 to 13 says this, but to all who did receive him, that's all it is. Receive Jesus, that's it. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is legal language. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So now, this is the cherry on top of salvation that I struggle with the most as a son of God, and as just a son, right, and as a child. Because of Jesus, not only am I justified before God, okay, I get that theologically, right? Not only am I at peace with him, but now I am his beloved adopted child. Now, if you guys know my story, I get it from the other side, but I struggle with it from the child side. Because of Jesus, God now doesn't see me as his enemy. He doesn't even see me as an annoying kid, even though I am, right? He doesn't see me that way. He sees me as his beloved. I'm the apple of his eye, and so are you. Uh, when I'm cooking at home, uh, I usually put in some headphones and uh, then nobody can talk to me, and I just ignore everyone. Um, no, I'm kidding. But I put in headphones, and I listen to either very, very nerdy legal analysis podcasts, true crime podcasts, right? Some of you like that, right? Or music. That's kind of the three things I tend to listen to. And so this last week, I was listening to a playlist of worship music, and uh, this song by Jesus Culture came on. And I just, it was just, it struck the lyrics of the chorus really just, you know, you ever have that experience? You listen to a song, and it just kind of gets you. Uh, probably because I was reading all this stuff this week and, and thinking through this. But, but listen to this line. This is a song called Halls of Heaven. Uh, if you have Spotify or whatever, pull it up on your way home and listen to it. It says this in the chorus. Like a child we come running through the halls of heaven. To the holy of holies, doors are flung wide open. Joy is overflowing in the halls of heaven. And when I heard that, what I thought about was my kids running through the house to come get a hug from me. My little one, waddling through the house. Sometimes she falls, not quite able to run yet, right? To, to come get a hug from me. 
For them in that moment, there is just absolute freedom in the relationship. They're not scared of anything. There's nothing that comes between us in those moments. And that is what God wants for your relationship with him. He wants that kind of intimacy with you. And that's what Jesus does for you. See, Jesus, by his saving work on your behalf, if you believe, he has given you the right to become the children of God. And that right can never be taken from you. And so you're able to come running into his presence. The doors are flung wide open to welcome you in because of Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, our Savior, we thank you for what you've done for us. For those of us who know and love you, we thank you that you saved us and you've rescued us from the wrath of God. But not just that. That's just the beginning. That's just the front door. And then you've welcomed us in and made us children of God. That we are, in some ways, your brothers and sisters. We are co-heirs with you, Jesus, of the throne and of your inheritance. And we, we thank you that you were willing to sacrifice everything for us. And that in that you gave us the salvation that we needed, that we couldn't get ourselves, that we couldn't bring about ourselves. You brought about salvation through your very body and your blood. And so we praise you for that. We thank you. And I just ask over these next few weeks as we focus on who you are, Jesus, that you give our minds the ability to really retain and focus on these truths so that we can go out here and edify and shine light in our world. We pray this in your name. Amen.